I want to thank uh, Jonathan Schold for stepping in the pulpit last week. Thank you, brother. Um, it, was, it was a joy. I was edified by your first sermon and trust that the Lord will continue to use it. Um, as you're turning to John chapter 5, let me ask you a question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written in part so that we can answer that question well. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus himself asks that very same question to Peter and the rest of his disciples. He kind of first takes a Gallup poll to ask them, All right, what are the people around saying about me? But then he asks them directly, who do you say that I am? Friend, who do you say that Jesus is? That's one of, if not the most important question you and I have to answer. As we come to this last section of John 5, the drama has crescendoed. It all began when Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus healed him just by speaking. Now, instead of rejoicing over this healing, the Jewish religious leaders charged this healed man with breaking their own traditions. And they bring the same charges to Jesus. According to their rules, Jesus violated the Sabbath. So Jesus responds to them essentially by saying, what I say matters more than what you say. Because my authority is greater than yours. My authority is equal with God, my father. Oh, now that religious leaders understand what Jesus claims, they can connect the dots. They have a clear answer to the question, who do you say that Jesus is? They say that Jesus is a blasphemer. They say that Jesus is stealing God's identity and misrepresenting who God is. So Jesus goes on to explain uh, in verses 19 to 29, where we were last week, that his identity is one with, yet distinct from, God the Father. Out of his shared identity with the Father, Jesus has authority to do what his Father does, authority to give life and authority to judge. Today, Jesus continues in his discourse, and he moves from explaining his identity to defending his identity. You'll notice as we read our passage that there are plenty of legal courtroom-like terms. You'll hear words like witness and testimony repeat several times. It's like Jesus is his own defense attorney. He defends against the charge that he is a blasphemer. And he contends that he is in fact sent from and one with God the Father. But as Jesus defends himself against this charge, we'll see that he's more than just a defense attorney. He's also a prosecuting attorney. You see, Jesus not only answers the charges brought against him, he brings new charges to those who are opposing him. And so you'll see the word accuse pop up a couple of times also. This section from John 5 reminds us the importance of the question, who do you say that Jesus is? But for as vital as that question is, this section also reminds us of a question maybe equally as important. Who does Jesus say that you are? My friend, we can get so caught up in evaluating who we think Jesus is that we forget that Jesus is the one who evaluates us. So with all this in mind, let's read God's word. John 5, verses 30 to 47. After I read this, I'll say, this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you join me to say, thanks be to God. John 5, 30 to 47. I can do nothing of my own accord. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. 
because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent a John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who, who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Main idea of this passage, Jesus' identity as sent from and equal to God the Father is credible. It's, yeah, it is incredible, but it is also credible. So if that's the case, then that means if we don't believe in Jesus, the problem isn't with lack of evidence. The problem is with our hearts. So in his defense against the charge of blasphemy, Jesus will call three witnesses to the stand. And that's going to structure our time. And these three witnesses will confirm his identity and confront his accusers. Now, before we get to the witnesses, Jesus makes his opening statement in the courtroom. Look again at verses 30 to 32. Verse 30 links the previous section with the current one. Once again, Jesus reemphasizes his oneness with the Father. He has just explained his, his authority to judge, and now he assures us that his judgment is just. So how can we know that Jesus' judgment of people is good and right and true? Well, because like everything else Jesus does, he is perfectly aligned with God the Father. Next in verse 31, Jesus introduces his strategy for his defense. As he defends himself against the charge of blasphemy, as he upholds his identity as one with and sent from God the Father, Jesus is going to do more than appeal to just himself. Jesus will appeal to other witnesses. If we slow down for a moment, you, you ask, why does Jesus feel the need for this strategy? I mean, does Jesus think that his own words aren't trustworthy? Are his own words not enough? Well, no. I think we should keep in mind this situation. Jesus makes a big claim. And big claims require big evidence. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to provide. It reminds me of the plagues in Egypt back in Exodus. You know, the plagues weren't just God's judgment on Egypt's wickedness. They were God's evidence. 
Through Moses, God told Pharaoh that Pharaoh would see that there is no one like the Lord. That's a big claim. But God backed it up with big evidence. Each plague demonstrated God's power over the so-called gods of Egypt. And so here, Jesus makes a big claim and he will back it up with big evidence. Just from the outset, speaking of this strategy, I wonder, friend, if, if someone has ever said something like this to you, like Christians and religious people have blind faith. You believe what you believe just because someone told you to believe it, whether it's your parents or your priest or your pastor. You haven't really seriously thought it through. What would you say to someone who said something like that to you? There's a lot you could, could say, but maybe you could surprise that person. Maybe you could tell them, you know what? You're right. A lot of people who claim they're Christians don't know why they believe what they believe. But that isn't how it's meant to be. Our faith may be in someone we don't see, but it is in someone who was seen. The book that is open on your lap, friends, is eyewitness testimony of Jesus that has been preserved for you and me. Preserved so that we would have reasons, so that we would have evidence to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God has not left his Son without a witness. So the last part of Jesus' opening statement in verse 32. Here we should keep in mind what Jesus has previously said. For example, if you go back to John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what, he is, only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Chapter 5, verse 19 reminds us that as Jesus acts, it's not just him acting. It's Jesus acting at the direction of and in alignment with God the Father. It reminds us that when Jesus speaks, it's not just him speaking He's speaking at the direction of and in alignment with God the Father. So here's another part of Jesus' defense strategy. He's telling these people, listen, I'm not just making this stuff up. My defense comes from the direction of my Father. And so his opening statement done, his strategy is in place. Now he calls witnesses to the stand. His first witness is John the Baptist. This lasts from verse 32 to verse 35. A quick but hopefully helpful note here. The apostle John wrote the gospel of John and he never refers to himself by name. So whenever you see the name John, it's John the Baptist. Okay, so Jesus calls John the Baptist as his first witness to testify to the truth of who he is. Now, why call on John the Baptist as witness number one? Well, one reason is because the people's reception of John the Baptist. We get this picked up as Jesus talks. The people's reception of John the Baptist. Verse 33, Jesus says, you sent to John. This likely refers back to chapter 1, verse 19, which says the Jewish religious leaders sent a delegation from Jerusalem to ask John, John, who are you? Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 35, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. People went out in droves to hear the guy who ate locusts preach. Later on in Jesus's ministry, the Pharisees were afraid to say anything bad about John the Baptist. Why was that? 
Well, in Matthew 21, verse 26, it says, because all the people received John the Baptist as a bona fide prophet. So Jesus calls John to the stand because of the people's reception of him. But also he calls John to the stand because of John the Baptist's role. What was John the Baptist's role? Well, verse 33, his role was to bear witness to the truth. Verse 35, his role was to be a burning and shining lamp. Who here has ever seen a play in a theater? Anybody? Okay, good majority of you. So during a play in a theater, if the room is dark and you're looking at the stage, how do you tell where the action is supposed to be happening? The spotlight, very good. So picture this spotlight operator. Is a spotlight operator's job. Have you ever seen one of those guys turn the spotlight around and shine them, shine it on themselves? <laughs> Say, look at me. The action's not down there. It's up here. No. So John the Baptist is like the spotlight operator. His, his job is not to shine the light on himself, but to turn it around and to show where the true importance lies on Jesus alone. That's why John the Baptist says things like, says things like about Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. That is his role, the spotlight operator. So do you see, Jesus has wisdom, even a bit of shrewdness to appeal to John as his first witness because the people received him and yet this prophet they received had the role of saying, Jesus is the Messiah. I think this is good instruction for us. Jesus's knowledge of his audience shaped his case to them. Jesus knows where they're coming from. Jesus knows how they think. Jesus knows what they believe. Here is some guidance for us, brothers and sisters. When you talk to someone about who Jesus is, you need to know the person you're talking to or else you're just gonna talk past them. You'll preach at them, not preach to them. So I wonder, can you find some common ground with that person and, and, and use that to point them to Jesus? Perhaps it's a desire to see justice for the wrongs done in the world. Perhaps it's their nagging sense of guilt or regret. Perhaps it's an admiration of beauty. Can you use some common ground to point them to Jesus? Read about how the Apostle Paul does that in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Here, Jesus knows that John was someone they all received. That's the common ground. But they didn't understand John the Baptist's role. And so Jesus's defense turns into a prosecution. It's like he tells them, guys, if you really receive John as a prophet, you would receive John's message as well. That John pointed to me. And Jesus clarifies in verse 34, he says, it's not that I call on John because I need John. One commentator says, Jesus doesn't need authentication from John's testimony. No, Jesus is authentic. No, Jesus calls John to the stand. He, he does it for the sake of those he's talking to. Look at verse 34. Not only does Jesus know them well, he loves them well. He says, I say these things to you so that you may be saved. I think this is more instruction for us in our witness for Jesus. 
brothers and sisters, when you talk to someone about Jesus is and what he's done, your job is not just to prove somebody wrong. Your job is to set out to love that person and do them good. Seek that they may be saved, not seek that you win an argument. I I just can't help but see the mercy of Jesus here. Jesus, Jesus just could have dismissed these people. He could have dismissed them. He said, you guys are questioning me. You're opposing me. You're rejecting me. I don't have the time of day for you. Get out of my face. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he engages them. And it's not because Jesus can't can't help with people um, thinking ill of him. Jesus wants to see their good. He wants to see them be saved. I think there's a lesson for us as well. My friend, if, if you have big objections to Jesus or to the Bible or Christianity, I want to thank you for being here. I pray that you can see Jesus's merciful heart here in this passage. I pray that you can see that Jesus can handle big objections and big questions. And I pray that you could see us reflecting Jesus's heart. That us as a people, we don't want to shut down questions or shut down objections. We want to engage with them. So please, afterwards today, stick around and talk to us about them. But Jesus isn't done. Jesus has more witnesses. The next witness he says is better than the first one. In verse 36, he calls his works as a witness that testify about who he is. Look with me there again, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. All right, so just getting our bearings. Remember, people have charged Jesus with blasphemy. Jesus' works defend against that charge and prove that he is sent from and one with God the Father. Let's take a moment to slow down over verse 36. Notice how Jesus describes his works. He says his works are a better witness than John the Baptist. This makes sense, right? I mean, it's one thing for someone else to hype him up. It's quite another thing for Jesus himself to back it up with his works. Jesus describes his works as coming from the direction of his father, as a part of his father's plan, and they are works he is continuing to do. They are ongoing And finally, Jesus describes his works as a witness that the Father has sent him. But I think similar to John the Baptist, Jesus appealing to his works as a witness. We see his wisdom in doing that. Jesus, once again, is shrewd. Jesus knows his audience. His his knowledge of them shapes his case to them. Jesus knows that they have seen him do these works. For example, they saw him turn the water into wine in chapter two at the wedding at Cana. They saw Jesus do many signs at the Passover feast in Jerusalem at the end of chapter two. They saw Jesus heal this paralyzed man at the beginning of chapter five. Jesus knows that they have seen him do these works. And Jesus even knows that his opponents haven't denied his works. They haven't denied what they have seen. So Nicodemus, a Pharisee, says to Jesus in chapter three, verse two, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They can't deny what they're seeing. Chapter 11, verse 47, his opponents are at a loss about what to do about him. 
Why? The verse says because they can't deny that this man performs many signs. Jesus is wise in calling his works as a witness to the stand. He knows they have seen him. He knows they can't deny them. My friends, John will say at the end of his book that there are many more works that Jesus did that John didn't include in his gospel. I wonder, don't you think that Jesus's star would have fizzled out if his works proved phony? Think about the paralyzed man from John 5. If one day he's... He was paralyzed again. Wouldn't Jesus' star sort of fade? No, all of Jesus' works were verifiable. And there were plenty of examples that could have been disproven. They have seen it. They have seen his works and they can't deny it. So Jesus' defense turns into a prosecution. They have seen his works. They haven't denied his works. So it's like he tells them, guys, I'm not the one who's guilty of blasphemy. You're the ones who are guilty of unbelief. I'm not the one who hasn't backed up my claim. You're the one who's made the wrong conclusion. So some like Nicodemus saw and acknowledged Jesus's works, but concluded that he was only a prophet. Others, like the scribes and Pharisees, saw and acknowledged Jesus' works, but concluded that he, he did his works by the power of Satan. Oh, friends, the only conclusion that should be plain from Jesus' works is that he shares the same identity as God. In other words, Jesus' works show that he can do what only God can do. And his greatest work that will display that is that Jesus would die for the sins of all those who would trust in him and rise from the dead three days later. My friend, if you are not a Christian, we gently but confidently say that Jesus's works are too many, are too powerful, are too verifiable, especially his resurrection, to be denied. We say gently but confidently, Jesus' claims are too big for him just to be a prophet, just to be a teacher, just to be a good man. We say along with C.S. Lewis, you must conclude that either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or that he is who he says he is, that he is Lord. Brothers and sisters, Pastor J.C. Ryle exhorts us from verse 36. Don't be phased by those who reject the Bible's miracles. Don't be phased by those who reject the Bible's miracles until people can disprove that Jesus got up from the dead. All of the other miracles should fall in place. The resurrection would be the easiest miracle to, to disprove, but no one did. So J.C. Ryle says, if Christ really rose from the dead by his own power, there is none of his mighty works which we need to hesitate to believe. Jesus' works serve as a witness to who he is, one with and sent from God the Father. So again, Jesus uh, defends against the charge of blasphemy. He's calling witnesses to the stand. Third witness is that he calls God the Father himself. Now we start in verse 37. And we need a little bit more carefulness in order to trace Jesus's argument. Perhaps we could summarize Jesus's argument from verses 37 to 47 in this way, that the father bears witness that Jesus is the son of God and he does this through his word. 
The Father bears witness that Jesus is the Son of God, and he does this through his word. Jesus also calls the word the scriptures. He also calls it Moses, which refers to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. So we'll ask the same questions. Why does Jesus appeal to this witness? Why does Jesus call to the stand God, his father, who witnesses through the Bible? Again, it's because Jesus is wise. He knows his audience. His knowledge of them shapes his case to them. He appeals to the witness his father gives through the Bible because he knows the people's reception of the Bible. Look at verse 39. He knows that they search the scriptures. Verse 39 again, he knows that they place a high value on the scriptures. Verse, 30, verse 45, he knows they hope in Moses. Again, Moses is another way to refer to what God wrote through Moses. That is the Torah. And Torah means law or instruction. So by setting their hope on this, these people were saying that God's instruction are all that, is all that we need. We believe that our close obedience to God's instruction is what will finally save us. So Jesus is wise. He knows who he's talking to. He appeals to the Bible because he knows the people he's talking to receive the Bible. But he appeals to it not just because of the people's reception. He appeals to God's witness through the Bible because of the Bible's role. God the Father uses the Bible for the role of revealing who he is and what he's like. So verse 37, his voice, God's form are both connected to God's word in verse 38. The ultimate way the father uses the Bible to reveal what he's like is by revealing his son. So Jesus says in verse 39, it's the scriptures that bear witness about me. Verse 46, it's Moses who wrote of me. So just to sum it up, the father uses the Bible for the role of showing what he's like. And the Bible shows us what God is like by showing us God's son. So in stating his defense, Jesus identifies a disconnect in his, in his accusers. He turns the tables on them again. His defense becomes a prosecution. It's like he tells them, guys, I'm not guilty of misrepresenting God. You're guilty of misunderstanding God. Look at verse 42. He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He tells them, if you searched the scriptures and really knew what God was like, you would see God in me. He'll later tell one of his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. Here he tells his accusers, if you really love the God who has revealed himself through the Bible, you'd be quick to recognize that God is now revealing himself to you through me. There's a disconnect. They're exposed to the right sources, but they have made the wrong conclusions. And you can read the Bible cover to cover and still not understand it. So Jesus' defense becomes a prosecution. He tells them, I'm not guilty of contradicting the Bible. You're guilty of misunderstanding the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, were never meant to be an end in themselves. They were a means to an end. They were a shadow of the better things to come. Think of the Torah maybe like the first telephone. 
Alexander Graham Bell style. It's good, but it's not ultimate. It's a preview of something better to come. Jesus is like the iPhone, the phone to which all others point, right? The Torah is not an end in itself. Moses himself understood that. What we read earlier from Deuteronomy 18, Moses knew God's people needed someone greater than him. Hebrews 10 verses three to four reminds us that the Torah is not an end in itself. It says all the animal sacrifices that God instructed his people to make day after day and year after year should have shown them that these sacrifices could not fully and finally pay for their sin. They needed a greater and a final sacrifice. God's, the, peop, the people of God and their tendency to sin should have shown them that the Torah is not an end in itself. As they tried to follow God's instructions in the law, they should have realized that the law gives no power to keep it. In line with Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36, they should have known that they needed more than the law of God written on tablets of stone. They needed the law of God written on their hearts. So here, Jesus is the end to which the Torah points. He is the one greater than Moses. He is the full and final sacrifice for sin. He is the one who by his death and resurrection gives us new hearts so that we desire and have the ability to follow God's instruction. Jesus' accusers misunderstood. He did not contradict the law. He came to fulfill it. The law was not an end in itself. It is a means to the end of bringing us to Christ. But Jesus presses deeper in his prosecution. It's like he tells them, all right, you guys have had a lot to say about me. Now it's my turn to say something about you. Do you know why you misunderstand the scriptures? Do you know why you misunderstand me? It's not because you lack evidence. Friends, it's because you lack the right heart. Verse 40, that's why they refuse to come to him. Verse 42, they lack hearts that love God. You guys love other things more than you love me. It reminds us that faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus is not just a matter of your head, it's a matter of your heart. You don't just need to agree with certain facts. I think a lot of us would shy away from evangelism, from, from speaking about Jesus to other people. Be, maybe a reason we say is, I don't feel like I can answer other people's questions very well. And I I acknowledge that. I think there's room to grow in that. Questions do matter. You do realize, though, that you can have all of your questions answered and not believe. Faith is not just a matter of head. It is a matter of heart. You have to lay aside what gets in the way. You have to topple the idols that you're worshiping. Because faith begins with loving worship of Christ. Verse 44, Jesus explains one thing that gets in the way. One thing that gets away is that they love the approval and praise of people more than the approval and praise of God. So here's how this might work for them. If they were to set their hope on Jesus and not on the law, then that means that Jesus would get the glory for saving them. They wouldn't get the glory for saving themselves. So maybe this is an insight for us, that the people refuse to come to Jesus because people don't want to admit that they need Jesus. People refuse to come to Jesus because we want to be our own Lord and Savior or use something else to be our own Lord and Savior. So why do you think the popular message of our day is being true to yourself? 
Finding yourself, saying yourself is enough. Why is every other religion about what we need to do in order to earn our way back to God or a better afterlife? Why are the last words of Buddha, strive endlessly, and the last words of Jesus, it is finished? It's because the natural state of our hearts is that we want the glory for saving ourselves. We want to be seen as the ones who are bright, seen as the ones who are sufficient, seen as the ones who are strong and beautiful and good. In other words, friends, we want to be the hero. And if that's our heart, how are we supposed to believe the Bible's message that Christ is the hero and that we are the ones who need rescuing? If the state of our heart is desiring to be the hero, to get the credit and to be seen by others, then the message of a crucified savior will sound dumb and useless. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. If the state of our hearts is desiring to be the hero, well, then that must mean the spirit of God must give us new hearts if we are to believe that Christ is the hero. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, no one says Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches us in John 5 that the way to get praise and approval from God is, by, is not by believing in yourself, but by believing in him. The way to get praise and approval from God is not by believing in yourself. It's by believing in him. That's why Jesus tells them in verse 40, come to me so that you may have life. My friend, have you done that? Do so today if you haven't. He speaks to you in his word. Look to him. He is the one who kept the law when you didn't who obeyed when you disobeyed. He is the one who paid the penalty for our law-breaking. He is the one who gives us life by by giving up his life. Christians, Jesus reminds us here that the way to get praise and approval from God is not by our Bible knowledge. It's not through our religious deeds. It's not through our good works. The way to get praise and approval from God is by believing in Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus now search the scriptures, not just to store up facts. We search the scriptures because we want to see him. We have tasted his goodness and we want to know him more. We want to learn how to live in a way that's pleasing to him, how to glorify the one who has saved us. Oh, we try to model that each week as we open up God's word together. We pray that God would give you a big appetite to see Christ in all the scriptures. So where have we been? Jesus is is proving his case. He's defending against the charge of blasphemy. This is who he is. He is one with and sent from the Father. He is the eternal son of God who became human. He is the one who kept the law perfectly. He is the one who on the cross bore the curse we deserved for breaking the law. He is the one who rose from the dead three days later. He is the one who ascended to heaven and reigns as Lord, the one who has all authority in heaven on earth. He is the one who will return to judge the world, making all things new and establish his kingdom. Friend, is this who you say that Jesus is? Jesus is not without a witness. John the Baptist, a prophet widely recognized, testifies to who Jesus is. Jesus' works, seen and acknowledged even by his opponents, testify to who he is. Jesus' father, speaking through the scripture, testifies to who he is. And let me add one more. Us in this room, 
who know the truth about Jesus and have been saved by Jesus are now called his witnesses. And we testify to who he is. A follower of Jesus, you are now in the courtroom and have taken the stand. See the honor of joining the great cloud of witnesses who testify that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great savior. Take the stand and pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, your life would be a compelling witness that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christian, by God's grace, take the stand and be a witness. Grow in confidence to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that is within you, the hope that you have in Jesus. Christians, as a church, we take a stand and collectively are a witness for Jesus, even as a church. We preach the truth from his word about who he is and what he has done. By his spirit, through the word, as a church, we want to display Christ's holiness, Christ's love, Christ's grace. Perhaps fitting words to end with is words that we, sa- we sang earlier. Helping, asking God for help to be a witness for who Christ is and what he has done. Would you pray along with me as we close? Holy Spirit, from creation's birth, giving life to all that God has made, show your power once again on earth. Cause your church to hunger for your ways. Let the fragrance of our prayers arise. Lead us on the road of sacrifice, that in unity the face of Christ may be clear for all the world to see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.